Hello, my friends, Nigel here, and welcome to Backable, the podcast where we explore the top performance habits in both business and life. Today, Tim, Alana, and I sit down and reflect on the worst business advice we've ever received. It's a really fun one where we dig into what makes advice good or bad. We look at the filters and situational factors that help us make that distinction, and how some of the worst advice we have each received was perhaps not bad advice, just bad for that time. It's a great episode. Hope you enjoy. Hello, friends. Nice to have you back. I'm here with my wife and Chief Operating Officer, Alana Harari, and my second wife, Nigel Walton, who (laughs) just hangs around, always just hanging around. But (laughs) what a lovely introduction. (laughs) Nigel, it's COVID. Everyone's under stress, okay? (laughs) Um, Nice to have you both here. I want to talk today about something that's very fun because we were having this chat the other day and we were talking actually with a few clients about it. I want to talk about the worst advice you've ever received because when you delve into this, you realize that there's no bad advice. It's just the wrong advice that you apply at the wrong time. Obviously, there is bad advice. That's a really dumb comment I just heard myself (laughs) saying. There's actually terrible advice. But obviously, running an advisory and a performance advisory, we're spending a lot of time hearing people's problems, seeing how they got there, hearing how they got there. So this is something that's very, very familiar for us, but also something worth discussing because I think as a business owner, we have to work out how to navigate advice, particularly now. Advice is not the problem. You can go onto Instagram and they'll show you how to make a million dollars overnight using a new marketing strategy versus people who have been in advisory for years and years and the top echelon of consultants. So I thought today that we might just talk about some of the advice we've personally received and why was it just freaking terrible? Is that all right with you two? Yeah. Why are you laughing? Because most of the advice I've personally received has come from you, mate. So. <laughs> and I've been a young woman in business, so I've received all of the advice. <laughs> Listen, don't make me mansplain anything to you at the moment, Lana, because, um, and Nigel, don't make me mansplain to you. But I want to start with one because I think Advice is really important. We, we grow by learning. We grow by receiving new information and processing it. As our business become bigger, as we become smarter, as we start to become more aggressive in terms of our growth plans and the things we want to do, we start to get a really good filter around the type of advice we take on and the way in which we process it. When we're younger in business or less experienced, we pretty much look at who's got the most money and go, they must know what they're doing. But it's not actually the... <laughs> It's not actually true, true, which is (laughs) people with money haven't necessarily been the smartest because you don't know their backgrounds on how they started. So I know a few people who have got a lot of money, but they're morons. It's not because they're not good at making money. It's because they started with the infrastructure around them because they've had third generation family wealth that it's hard for them to stuff up. They've basically got floaties on. For those who are listening overseas, floaties are those things you used to put on kids' arms and throw them in the pool so they didn't go under. I think they're illegal now because they worked out the arms would go above the head and the kids would be. So they're not. But this is essentially what it is, right? Which is people with money don't necessarily have great advice. You need to work out the source. And and maybe I'm going to jump into probably some of the worst advice that I've ever received, but it's important advice. It's just when you apply. And one of the things that I heard very early on, and I'm not sure who it was, I think I might have just 
formulate it myself, but I'm pretending I heard it. The advice is debt is bad. Have you guys ever been told don't get debt? Absolutely. With the caveat that home loans weren't included in debt. So get a home loan because that's fine debt, but don't leverage yourself to do something. Yeah. So there's a big thing around the world, which is a property is a good investment, which is not necessarily true, by the way. It can be a very, very good investment for a lot of people, but it's a very safe one for the masses because it's an asset-backed debt, which is essentially an instrument for the banks. The banks sell you a mortgage. The mortgage is their product. They don't care if you pay it back or don't because if you fail, they get the property. And if you pay it back, they get their money. Yeah, either way they win. Yeah, which is good to be a bank, right? Yeah. But this is the whole point. But what is debt? So Lana's a perfect example. A house isn't debt. A house is an asset, but it's a debt for a very long time. When we get into business, we start to work out, well, what is debt? Because all debt's not created equal. And that's exactly the point of this advice. When people say debt is bad, you haven't differentiated the types of debt. So some debt is horribly bad. Buying a sports car with 90% of your wage and having a depreciating liability is not good debt at a certain amount in your time. Because you mentioned this to me, I think, when we were first dating, when I knew nothing about... Oh, was I explaining anything. debt over our dates, was yeah. I? <laughs> you were mansplaining Ferraris. Um, <laughs> and you said, a car is an asset that loses value the moment you drive it out of the dealership. A liability. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, didn't explain it very well. Yeah. You've got to work on your mansplaining. <laughs> but it's, um, yeah, it's something that I'd never thought about, is a car is probably bad debt. As much as you need it, it's not going to go up in value, but you make that decision. So the, I guess, advice of all debt is bad is incorrect. And that's what you're getting at. Yeah. Like I was really frustrated by that idea that you spend money on a car and it goes down. My first cars that I bought were um, classic cars and they all went up in value. There used to be a running joke in my friendship group. You're the only guy who's ever made money off automobiles. <laughs> the problem with it is old cars always break down. So as much as they went up in value, they haven't quite seen the bottom line cost of how much you, you spend to keep them running every day because they, because you need, you know, something goes wrong and you have to find a classic part. But as a business owner, you have to work out what debt's good because at some level, you're going to need to use debt to grow your business. And people go, no, nah, I'm never going to be in debt. I go, well, what happens if you get an opportunity that you need to take? Well, I just, it's the wrong time. And this is the issue. You can't try and get the perfect timing in business, you actually have to have a debt management process in your company because for all of us that are self-funding our businesses, we need to find debt facilities, which are how do I access money when I need it for growth opportunities? We probably are very conservative, Lana, because you know when we started, it was just us. So we did it the dumb way. Our debt facility was our credit cards. So we woke up one day and we go, oh, Whoops. That's, that's, that's more debt on our credit card than is a house deposit. That's a lot of money for us at that time. I mean, there was no other way to finance our business at that time because we didn't have access to cash anywhere else, did we? Yeah, and that for us was a really good lesson. I know we're talking about bad advice, but the lesson that came from that was better management of money, better management of assets, better cash flow and forecasting because that's a lesson you only have to learn once to see all of those zeros on a credit card and have to pay it off. And I think that's part of it. You need it to grow because you need to find a debt facility. And for those who don't understand what a debt facility is, it's basically who can I borrow some money off 
in order to get through this period for whatever reason. And borrowing money at times is required because another debt facility might be an investor. If you look at it, it's actually getting money for something. So you're either paying the investor back or you're selling equity, but you're raising capital in order to grow. If you don't understand the right type of money to access, it'll be like buying a car. If you're borrowing money to get through your daily operations because you've got a business model that doesn't work, that's poor debt because you're not fixing the problem. If you're borrowing money to grow because you've got a business model that just needs more money to grow quickly because actually the model works, that's different. As an owner of your company, you've got to look at why am I needing to access debt? Because if you understand that, then debt's not bad. Debt is a growth strategy and an important one, by the way. It's lost on a lot of SMEs, but in the bigger businesses, debt is basically financiers' business, which is how do we use debt or different types of debt to grow something or accelerate something. We've mentioned it ages ago in the podcast, invoice finance debt. Good or bad debt? And firstly, could you explain what it is for people who may not know what it is? So there's an interesting one. So there's a common one for a lot of businesses, which is invoice financing. It's pretty big here in Australia for trade businesses. And what it is, is somebody buys the invoice off you and gives you the cash flow up front. So if there's 90-day terms and you've got, say, $100,000 that's coming in on invoice, and particularly in construction and things like that, there might be long terms, 90, 120 days. Now, for a company that needs to pay their employees and do things like that, they might need to access that cash flow to get through that period of time. So they go, well, I'll sell it to a invoice financing company. The company might give you 50 or 60% of that invoice up front because they know essentially you're good for it or the business that is owing you the money is good for it. But they take a clip of it. And the problem with a lot of businesses is they don't understand their margins in these things. So you've got to imagine that if you're a business that had $100,000 going in and you had 20% profit on that, but that job ran over and you actually don't have that margin, but you've already sold the margin. So you actually could have worked that whole time for nothing or lost money. So you have to be really good at understanding how you use debt. But this is the whole point of this discussion, which is debt isn't bad. Debt is important. You have to understand it. So for people who say, I never want a credit card. Yes, credit card debt can be at a high interest rate that is not the best sort of financing debt. And if you're using your credit card to buy things you can't afford that are nice to have, not necessities, well, of course, it's terrible debt. We've got a plague proportion of poor debt in most of the established world. In business, you can't take that principle, which is all debt is bad, because you're going to have to work out how to leverage great types of debt to grow your company if you've got ambition to grow it, because businesses eat money. And so if that was really bad advice that you got, debt is bad, what's the Tim Kuteris flip side of that for a business now? The right debt leads to growth. And so I'm always looking for ways to leverage opportunities to access good types of debt that are backed by whatever it is. If it's an asset, if it's, um, it's because it's cheaper to get debt than actually use our own money. Say we've got free $10,000 and I know that our business can produce X because of that. So we produce X consistently there. If we had an extra $100,000, we could produce two Xs. 
Now, if I've got $10,000, but it costs me 100 to produce those two Xs, well, that 10,000 can be used as interest on debt to be able to get to the two Xs, where my 10,000 isn't enough to get the next bit of machinery. And this is the thing, you have to understand the role debt plays in your business. There aren't many businesses that can just fund their growth at a substantial rate just using their own cash flows. That's a pretty rare business. So have a look at all the big tech companies. And people are huge. Yeah, they raise debt over and over and over again because they need it for their growth. Because even if they're making their own money, the debt was cheaper to grow. It's a different game and you need to understand the role it plays. But because a lot of us have come from conservative, potentially middle class type environments, debt's seen as a very different thing. And it is very important to understand a lot of the game in business you're going to have during the growth period is around managing debt not having no debt. I was speaking to someone the other day and they were worried about a company they were looking to acquire because it didn't have enough debt. So they knew that the people were conservative and that they weren't looking to optimise their opportunity. It was a banker. So you're saying credit card debt bad, business growth debt good? I think it's credit card debt can be fine if the interest you're paying on that credit card (laughs) is outperforming what it's being used for. So I don't want to get too deep into finance and things like that. It's understanding your relationship with debt. So how do you see it in your personal life? Most people are happy the day they get a mortgage. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I finally got a huge 30-year debt. I've made it. (laughs) I am secure. Why is that even a – why are you happy when you get a mortgage? I guess it's because you've got the asset that goes with the mortgage to give you what is deemed to be stability, but it's probably not quite stable at the moment. Yeah, but even so, why do you think people are generally happy? Because they're no longer throwing away their money on rent. Like it seems like dead money. (laughs) I just was an advert. Yeah, that's (laughs) exactly right. Now, Nigel's being exactly, it's exactly the point. He has been conditioned to say rent money is dead money, but it's not. Every dollar should have its own view on what it needs to produce. So Nigel's secure because he feels he owns an asset now. So he actually is psychologically stable. He doesn't look at it as, my God, I've got 30 years to pay off this investment that might not be yielding as much as my money could. Yeah. So he would have never even considered not buying a house, even if he could get twice as much out. Now, I'm not saying it's a wrong investment, by the way. We've been pretty lucky here in Australia and other areas in the world, but I guarantee there are places in the States and everywhere else in the GFC that people weren't happy they had houses, that they're still recovering from it. And this is an illusion. And this is understanding debt in your life. The reason mortgages are good for the general populace is because they can get leverage. So they only need to save a deposit to get the house. So you're actually leveraging a bigger chunk of money. And over 30 years, it should yield a good return for someone who's unsophisticated in money. And that's the general populace. So it's a great investment for the banks, for the government. But what we have to do for our business, we have to find the best yield for every dollar, how to leverage and then how to, in a risk-free way, access ways to grow faster. And obviously finding those mechanisms is really important. So as you can see, a simple bit of advice, which is debt is bad. Once you have a more sophisticated understanding of how debt works and how you use it as a tool, because debt is a tool, by the way, it's a tool for business, not something that's bad. Sounds like a podcast all on its own, doesn't it? <laughs> New topic. Yeah, but, but it really is important because I think that one's really under, not understood well. So it took me many years to understand that actually owing money to someone isn't a bad thing. 
It's who you owe money. So if I owe money to a friend because I've lost a bet, that's bad. (laughs) (laughs) Unless I'm a professional gambler using them as a debt facility, which is fine. But this is what we have to understand. So that's a simple one to start with. (laughs) (laughs) Not deep at all. (laughs) But, but, But it is important. I mean, even that conversation, Nigel, probably starts opening up your mind to what else have you considered in your personal investment? I don't want to throw you under the bus. You don't need to, you know, put out all your numbers. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because the only thing you've thought of is how can I get a house? Yeah, and you're right. That conditioning does run very deep because it starts right from the beginning. It gets in under your skin. So it becomes, like you said, you don't even know who told you the advice debt is bad. It may have been something that you accumulated all these little bits and put into your head, then externalized, which makes it even more persuasive. So that's the line that I follow my entire life. You go, okay, I need to buy a house. If I didn't have a house, I felt like I was failing. Yeah. And then as soon as I got one, I went, yeah, that's awesome. And then I, I think it was three days later, I saw someone on Instagram that was super famous and going, I don't own a house. I rent six different properties all around the world and travel from there. And I went, if only I'd seen that three days earlier. <laughs> I'm glad you didn't because it wasn't a bad. <laughs> By the way, as much as I'm saying this, and I'm not saying you would do this, but you need to do more than watching an Instagram playboy say that they rent houses because there's also not understanding what they're doing. It's around tax structures and all these things. We're not going to get into it in this podcast, but you must look at your relationship with debt in your life. And if you've never heard the phrase that debt is a tool, it's because we're not talking about retail debt, which is mum and dad's, the general populace. We're talking about using debt as a business tool to grow your business or find opportunities. Leverage is where this ends up being. But when I was told that, everyone was referring to retail debt. Keep your credit cards down. Don't buy things you can't. It doesn't transfer into business. Business is about finding as much debt as you can to leverage it. And that's why advice is really important because as we start to become more aware of what people mean, we actually realize that the people we're talking to us, we're only talking about a type of debt because they're not aware of the other side because they're not business owners. But this is for all of us is understanding how do we use the advice in the right areas? And more importantly, how do we question it? How do we make sure that you don't trust anyone? Yeah, it reminds me, I was listening to a um, podcast the other day, but Bill Burr, who's one of the biggest comedians in the world, he refuses to give any comedian advice. Because he said when he was coming up, if I'm going to give someone advice, I'm only speaking from my perspective. So all I'm trying to do is make them more like me, whereas that would be killing the thing that would be them and the opportunities that they have. And I think there's an element of that in any type of advice because you only speak from your personal perspective. As um, we've spoken about before, I have an absolute dislike for a type of consultant because of one real reason, which is they can't factor in the variables for each individual personal business. They use what worked for me and see if I can apply it to your business. But there are too many variables that need to be taken into account to deal with that business because everyone's so different. Fundamentals are the same, but the variables are very different. Gone are the days of not being able to track that. Lana spends hours and hours and hours charting and plotting this data, which is no one should be able to give advice now without the data backing it. You make me sound super fun. Uh, you, uh, yeah, you are very fun. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, there's a certain sort of a person who can get away with talking to a certain sort of a business and then there are other businesses that actually look for what comes after. What comes after the advice, so to speak, is 
that's cool that you've told me to do this. You've told me to change my business, add this into my business, and then what? And it's the and then what that I think is coming up through what we're talking about here with advice is advice is great. It's how you personally apply it to the situation. And it's very easy to say debt is bad and that you could have followed that all along your life that debt is bad. But at some point you made the decision that actually you were going to look at that advice as I guess a responsible adult, which is that was given to me at a time, but what does it actually serve for me now? And is it still relevant for me now? And I think that's a key part of advice is everyone can give it, but it's up to you to apply it and you to change your mind on it. Absolutely. And I think with that, it's talking about the filtering systems. And, you know, we use a brutal one and used to say, calm down. I remember particularly early on because I would go to anyone who would give advice, great, show me the result for you. How have you applied that? Oh, well, um, oh, so you understand the theory, you've never applied it. Okay, so that's really credible. So I've got a lot of smart friends who've read a lot of books and done nothing. They've read all the books you could think of. And do you think there's one action item on the end of it? No. So I would never take advice from them about an area like that. They're amazing in other areas in their life. I'm not even talking about my closest friends because they're all bloody smart and they apply things. But I'm talking about people I've met. The next person says, you know, one day I want to start a business. I go, excellent. Make sure you invite me to the opening. (laughs) (laughs) Or the joke with uh, Philodemo, the amount of people who used to say when they heard what it was, Oh, yeah, I was going to do that. Yeah, I was going to do that. Yeah, 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 I know you were. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) That's why I'm talking to you now because this is the seat for people who've done it and this is the seat for people who keep thinking they can do it. And this is the thing you have to understand is make sure you scrutinise where your advice is coming from really closely. And here's something that might be a little controversial. You might not be able to trust your parents unless you want exactly the same life as them, which is not a bad thing if you want that life. But you've got to look at everyone. Every single person's trying to help, but they're using their filters for life. And it's really important you don't use anyone else's filters because that leads to very much unhappiness. Nigel, maybe we'll jump to you. What's the worst advice you've received? I've received countless bits of bad advice or I've interpreted countless bits of advice badly, let's say. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So one of the worst bits of advice that uh, I've ever received was your work will speak for itself. No, it won't. Unless it's an audio (laughs) book. Or a podcast. (laughs) Because it's literally. Yeah, Yeah, I I get it. Yeah. Uh, so the, the premise being that if you do good work, people will notice and that you will receive the accolades and rewards that come along with success. I got that advice early on and I watched it manifest in the direct opposite way through multiple different uh, professions for multiple different people. The intent behind it is right. You should be doing good work, I believe, and you should be doing the best work that you are capable of at any point, but it doesn't speak for itself. When I was doing comedy years ago, I started with people that were at the top of the chain. They are the funniest people I've ever met. This is 20 years later. And those people that were at the top of the chain and everyone was looking at going, I want to be like them, are still sleeping on people's couches. Nigel, that's a bad debt issue. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I've grown to believe that, yeah, you have to do the good work, but you also need to promote that and put your work 
in as many places and in front of as many opportunities as possible. I agree. I think um, I don't. I don't even know if it's a your work will speak for itself because I think there's an underlying premise that if you want to play at a great level, you need to be a top performer in whatever you do. You still need to be great. Yeah. You know, we've used the McDonald's example. They don't make the best burgers in the world, but they run the most efficient restaurants in the world. Now, what are they great at? The people who go in there are looking for, but it's not the best food. You go, well, well, that's not what they were trying to be the best at. They were trying to provide the best family restaurant in the world when they started. And their back end was the business model of being able to replicate a consistent, quick experience. Which, guess what? For families with small kids, they want a quick experience. You order your food, you get it in 30 seconds, and so the kids aren't getting ratty, they can enjoy it, so it becomes a good transaction. It's easy to go to the drive through and quickly have a hot meal. I'm talking back in the 60s when that was a thing. It's obviously different now because fast food is not in vogue at the moment, but where the core of what they were was around being the best family experience you could have it as a restaurant because these things didn't exist. And so you have to look at what part of your work should speak for yourself. So is being the most talented singer great if all you do is sing in the shower? And so how do you distribute your message or your core skill? Alana, you see this in the agency that you own, getting your message out there or getting people to take interest in what you're doing is an art form. The start of the art form is definitely about knowing. So you have to know your message, you have to know your audience And you have to be okay that you're not going to hit all of the audiences. Your message isn't going to resonate if you're targeting mums with a 13-year-old boy. For me, this advice comes back to you have to know exactly who you are and what you want from it because your work might speak for itself to a certain audience. And then the question becomes, well, is that enough? Simply using baseline example, you see people in Hollywood who leave it for the stage of Broadway. Now, for some people... That would be crazy because who doesn't want to be in Hollywood? But these actors know so well that this is what I want my life to be. So their work is to a certain audience and that's what they commit to, which is why this advice to me is always so funny, is your work will never speak for itself if you don't know who you want it to be speaking to. Absolutely. I think that's the key, which is that customer-centric. Nigel talks just then is a good example, which is he knew really funny comedians that have still not broken through on, say, an international level. But then you ask the question, so why do you think they're good? Are they that good that people listen to them and then demanded that they be heard more? Or they listen to them and go, no, it was good. They are, they're funny, but there's nothing else to it. Because this is the thing, who thinks you're good? So if you're always listening to family and friends and that's your barometer of if you're a good business or you're excellent at something, that's the wrong barometer. This is a customer-centric game, which is, the market will decide. So if you're not getting a legion of fans following you, why do you think you're good? You can be the absolute best. Your work will speak for itself. If it's got an audience of one, which is here's a podcast on all of Tim's favorite things, it may be the best podcast in the world that I'll listen to every single day. And so will your mum. And so will my mum. So there's an audience. (laughs) No, she won't. Maybe she'd be running it. Oh, so will your mum then, let's say. But it would be an audience of one. And this is the thing, like with all due respect to Nigel and and these examples of, of his friends, I think the work has to speak for itself but also has to drive people wanting more of it because people who want quality still want more of it. So if you're 
in front of your ideal customer and they don't want more of what you've got, what makes you think you are good? And this is very important. Your work can be brilliant, but it might be brilliant according to you, not actually to solve the problem. We, we do this with businesses all the time. Awesome product, built it for themselves. And taking this example for me personally is I get my, shall I say, business feedback from very high-ranking people who have done it before, who have sold it before, and who are brutal. They are definitely not my mother, and they have a deep affection for me. I'm thinking of three in particular, but they tell me the truth, and they can do it because they've come from experience. So the work speaks for itself, but to Nigel's point of it being bad advice, it speaks for itself with all of the hard work behind it to a certain audience who can see the validity of it because I've specifically found them to feedback to me. I agree with you, Nigel, that your work doesn't speak for yourself. You actually have to amplify the message out and see if you can create an audience. But I think the flip side of that is people being too focused on their core skill and not on their core audience. Yeah. How, do you, how do you enjoy building something for others? So I'm here to entertain people. So really what I need to work out is who do I want to entertain and is there enough of them? Because you can still be brilliant but not have huge distribution. That's okay. We're not talking about that. But if you've got ambition to take over the world, do you have a message, a product, a service that resonates with enough people? If enough of your people that you want to serve get exposed to you and don't stick, well, what's going on? You've got to ask yourself, maybe that's not what they want. And the other side of that, if we take it back to the types of businesses and the kinds of problems that they have when they come to us, the work speaking for itself, the work is the product. And this is something that I've fallen into quite often is I'll build the product and then wait for people to buy it. But the product is only a step. The sale or going out and selling it to people is a much larger part of that step. And it's something that a lot of people are scared of doing. Saying the work will speak for itself goes, I'm afraid of sales. People will find it because it's good. Particularly in business, like I think there's a lot of blame to be put on the movie Field of Dreams <laughs> with Kevin Costner. Um, he has probably single-handedly done more damage to businesses and people's personal finances than anyone else in the world. <laughs> and for those who have no idea what you're talking about. Field of Dreams, Kevin Costner, if you build it, they will come. Do not take that as business advice. Do not build it and they will come. That's how you lose a hell of a lot of money. You know, I hear this every week. If you build it, they will come. Just do a really great website. I'm pretty sure when we started the agency, which I think at the time it was just me, so the digital Avery 11 years ago maybe, I'm pretty sure that the opening line on my pitch deck was it used to be build it and they will come, but that's no longer the case. Yeah, and that's so when everyone could see all your posts on social because there was not enough people to change the algorithm. There was no algorithm. Yeah. <laughs> and we argued against it then, well, Let's be honest, you wrote my pitch deck. So you argued against the build it and they will come then. So the fact that you're still having these discussions 10 years on, yeah, that's some bad advice there. But I agree. And I think, as I said, you know, I don't want to hate on Kevin Costner, but you really <laughs> screwed the pooch there, mate. Um, whoever wrote that script <laughs> is really stuffed us up. But it's exactly right. You cannot guess around this. Don't build something shiny and wait. In the tech bust in the 2000s, there are countless interviews, articles, discussions around so many software engineers moving to Silicon Valley to build a great piece of software and then no distribution. So they built it and then they waited and then they went bankrupt. You cannot do that. 
that's not the game you're in because you must do good work. Let's just call that everyone should be doing unbelievable work. Then how do I get that out to let the customer, the client, and the audience decide? They're the ones that decide whether it's of value. Listen, I get there's a lot of people out there going, you can't value me. Yes, I can. I'm talking, this is a business podcast, which is, of course, we can value you. We can all be valued. Yeah. it's You're not valued by who you think you are. We've worked with a lot of coaches in different fields. And the first question we are is, why do you think people want what you're selling? This might resonate with you, but you're you. You're an audience of one. So you've built something to solve a problem in your life. And now you think everyone else needs that problem. Maybe you just solve the problem in your life. And that's great. And there might be another 10 people in the world that want to solve that too, but it doesn't mean it's necessarily going to be easily commercialized. It doesn't mean it's not great. It just means it doesn't resonate with enough people. And that's one of the things that I'm actually most grateful for about our friendship and our working relationship over the last 15 years is Mm. if I hadn't met you, I'd still be building stuff continually and people may find it. But you have a practice of conceptualizing something knowing that there's that little bit of a gap, but just enough to jump from selling it to somebody and then turning to me and going, hey, build it now because we've got someone that's already paying for it and we're going on Tuesday. Yeah. It's a pressure cooker at the time, (laughs) but it really drove innovation and made us take steps. Sorry, it made me take steps that I wouldn't have taken by myself. Yeah, I'm glad. I mean, that's the process we use. For me, it's only solidified as the right idea when you've solved it. So you need to get that feedback. By the way, this is, you know, I'm talking from experience, not just theory, (laughs) like doing it the other way. I'm going to build great product and not actually have distribution right. And then you're stuck with a whole bunch of great product. And the worst, (laughs) you know, many companies I've had, it was just too small a pool of customers. And years later, they're still emailing me go, have you still got that best product? And I'm like, oh, that hurts because (laughs) great product, poor distribution. But that's a slightly different thing because I think that also leads an ideal too. Not only the work will speak for itself, but there's that fine line between hard work then equals success. So people get so great at what they do that they assume then that they will be financially successful. It's almost the cause and root cause. The product will speak for itself is the effect. The hard work is the cause of you keep building product because you build something that doesn't work. So you just go, I'm going to work harder because I know it's good. I'm going to work harder, 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 and then I'll get success from the other side, which is actually the, the worst advice that I haven't directly received but have modelled off people that I admire. This to me kind of comes together because well, I believe what the three of us are saying is that having a good product and doing hard work around it is almost a non-negotiable. It's just assumed that you won't put out a bad product and that you are willing to go the extra mile to make it happen. So it's everything on top that makes it successful. And if people sit here and say, well, I don't want to work hard, I want to work smart. Because, and again, some more advice we've always been given. The question becomes, well, what's your definition of hard work? Because there'll always be someone willing to go the extra mile who most likely is going to work smart. They'll be the one who finds success because they just assume I have no other option but to have a good product. And it's always a very interesting dichotomy between hard work, good product, and what comes next. If you always assume that hard work and good product are part of what you do, it's the what comes next that actually makes the difference. Particularly recently, this is something I've been observing and and thinking about too, Lana, which is I think people hide in hard work. I think it's where... I've done it. I was going to say where the cowards (laughs) go, but that's not right because I think the intention is not being to be cowardly. It's to not understand it. As in, 
people will double down on what they're doing, which on by what the they way, know. yeah, which is also good because at some stage you have to put a certain amount of volume into anything you do. Like there, th- that is hard work, but some people will find a way to work harder or push themselves longer or exhaust themselves more or create more stress because they're not getting the result they need. So they don't find the actual hard work, which is the hard work is evolution, evolving your thinking around where you are to change the way you're thinking to see if you can get a different result, which might also be described as mastery. So what is the nuance in how I need to perform? Whereas you see others that just do more of the same or they keep heading down something that doesn't lead to a different result they may be better at something that is inconsequential to what we're trying to achieve but they think they're working hard they're not they're hiding in the things because they're avoiding the real change and this is the important thing where do we make sure that we're not avoiding what we have to learn in order to move forward by doing more of what we know is sort of working, but not really. You're talking about moving out of your comfort zone, that it's easy to hide in the hard work because you you know it. You yeah. can do it again and again and you can get a result that makes you feel bright and shiny and you can go home knowing that you've done a hard day at the office. Or- yeah, so what is hard work is, I guess, what we're defining. So if hard work for you is physically and mentally exhausted, what does that lead to? Whereas hard work, which is I need to keep challenging myself to find a better way or push forward or, or as, as you said, just finding that next part of the puzzle. That's the hard work. The hard work is forcing ourselves to evolve when we think there's a better way of doing something. I honestly think that hard work is a very dangerous thing because most people use it to hide. You actually see where they've got to their level and that's where they're going to stay and they double down on all the things that are marginally better but no real impact. I think you can lose years of your life. Which we have experienced from thinking hard work was the answer, but we were always going to work hard. It was what came after the hard work. Yeah, and let's define that. We're not talking about hours, are we? Like we work hard, which is up most days, the latest we would be up is 7 a.m. Yep. And the latest I'd probably, I'd go to bed somewhere between midnight and two every night. So if we look at it from hours, others would say we do hard work. But it's not hard work, that's hours. Yeah, we're talking about the fact that the work that gets done in those hours is of a, I'll say, a high mental level, as in we're constantly thinking because we're finding new ways to evolve. It's emotionally draining because it does involve people and management and planning for the future. And it's hard in terms of there's a level of faith that it will be okay. And I think that's sometimes overlooked in hard work is hard work is not stopping when you want to. It's as simple as that. When you're tired, you keep going. To me, that's what hard work is, when it's easier to shut off. But you know that there's something just out of reach that you keep going for. Yeah, for me, the hard work is knowing that that is not going to work for where we want to go and having to destroy it and rebuild it again and again because you keep outgrowing some part of your business and it's easier for most to just ignore that and get onto something fun versus that's not going to work. It's not doing what it's supposed to do, so we have to rip it apart. And it's hard to keep doing that because it creates a state of constant change and most humans don't like change. They like to get something that works and keep doing it. It's also mentally exhausting. Imagine you're a child and your sandcastle keeps getting kicked over and you keep going back to build it. That's pretty much every month for us. Yeah, every day. This isn't working, kick it over, start again. This isn't working, kick it over, use half of it. 
For me, that's what hard work equals success. But most people, hard work means getting better at the inconsequential and wondering why they're not getting results. So literally, here are the five things I know that I have to do to get to where I want to go. And I'll do them when I've got some more time. It's disastrous for businesses. And I don't want to, this is an uplifting podcast. So. <laughs> but you've got to have a think about that. If you're in your car or you're listening at home or you're just you know, considering this, do you consider yourself a hard worker? Great. Why do you consider yourself a hard worker? Because you're under a lot of pressure. Well, that's self-created. That's a choice. Yes, you're under a lot of pressure, but that's not the hard work. The hard work is constantly evaluating yourself and working out where your time's better spent for more impact. And then when you've mastered that, it's looking around at your whole organisation and seeing where others aren't. It's difficult to make rational decisions when you're exhausted and most people equate hard work to long hours and stress. That's not hard work. That's a lack of discipline. I don't know anyone in my immediate circle that isn't a hard worker. Where it becomes dangerous is that you link hard work with struggle and you have to struggle to get success because everyone's creating their biopic and their uplifting moment at the other end. It's okay to have an easy ride. And I just said that to myself, by the way. That was to no one else other than me. (laughs) Yeah, I certainly haven't subscribed to ever having an easy ride, that's for sure. But you did just say this to the consultants on Friday. Mm -hmm. Guys, it's okay to have an easy week. Don't yeah. feel that you haven't worked hard. Now, no, keep- to feel in control for a week. Yes. <laughs> yes. I was about to say their, their easy week is still heavy, but you had to actually tell these high-performing individuals, it's okay that you're not feeling stressed this week. Yeah, you don't have to feel high anxiety to be productive, even though it's certainly an anchor I've chosen in my life, which is not healthy. I really say it's not healthy. It has to be addressed at times because you know there's a lot of things that happen to your body if you're always under high stress or high anxiety. So you actually have to manage it. You I should have to see s- Tim's hair. <laughs> <laughs> well, we should see Tim's hair. <laughs> what are we, 45 minutes in, Lana's dropped a joke? Oh, sorry, 76 episodes and 45. Very good. I've been waiting for that one. <laughs> yeah. But that's exactly right. And I don't want to sound patronising for everyone out there, you're all working hard. Running a business, building a business is difficult because you're always challenged. Be proud of that. The thing that makes all of this hard is you have to actually have this self-awareness of, but is this really the thing that's going to get us to the next level? Is this really going to get there? Nigel, we've had a lot of conversations about this because we see the world a bit differently on things. And that's my job, by the way, because I'm the CEO, but it is Nigel does produce high quality and he's always striving. For me, what he would consider much more high quality for me is a waste of time compared to the impact. But you know, inevitably, where we come to together is the right level, but there should be that conflict. Nigel should want to be pushing for quality and I should be challenging on the other areas of the business that I see as more higher impact, but they're quality conflicts in a, in a company. And it's understanding where are you personally, where is your relationship with hard work and where is your relationship with what really makes impact in your business? Lana, maybe we'll jump to you because we haven't got your worst advice. What's the worst advice you've received in terms of business? 
<laughs> yeah. Thank you for putting that clarification because I bet the next thing was when Nigel said, I've got a, this bloke you should yeah. date. Yeah, I was going to say, you should go on a date with this guy. I found the guy who you'll love him or hate him, but he's you. I'm going to give context to mine. So the worst advice was it will all be okay. And the context of that is it will all be okay, but the second half is, but it might not look the way that you thought it would be okay. And so we all do things and we all strive thinking that at the end things will work out. But we're not told that how they work out could be different because of everything that you learn along the way in order to get to yeah. things being okay or the end goal. Yeah. And so for me when, when we're talking about worst advice and something you said was who gave it to you and what was the, I guess what, what was the point of your life when you got it? And for me it's the point of life when you get that it will all be okay. If you add that simple caveat of, but what okay is to you can be different, I think it becomes really great advice. I think that's a really important thing to think about in life in general because it's definitely not going to be okay. Like, let's be honest, life is tough. We've all lost loved ones that is never okay. We will never not miss them. It's not okay and it's not going to be okay. The difference is the calibration with what's your life now going to be to make it okay and that it'll be different. This this is a thing we're all going to go through if we haven't already. You can always find a way for your life not to be okay and your business not to be okay. As I said, I'm a chronic pessimist in business. (laughs) Lana knows that. I'm a chronic pessimist. If things aren't happening the way I want, I don't really sleep. Like I can't relax. It will be okay, but you've got to accept what okay is, but it doesn't mean it's going to be completely different to what you thought it's going to be. And holding that attachment, which is, this is what it must be for me to be happy, that's a pathway to madness. Everything that we're hearing, I think it's quite interesting that all of this advice, when you come across it in personal life, it's really easy to accept it. It's really easy to say, yeah, debt is bad. It's really easy to say, yeah, hard work will get me there. But when you apply it to business and suddenly it's not just you that it's affecting, that it's affecting a workplace or the growth of a business, all this advice becomes horribly terrible. Because there's other factors that you can't control. If you're an employee, great, work hard. If you're a business owner, you have to do so much more than work hard. And this idea of it's all okay, it will be okay eventually, but it might not be okay right now. And that's fine. But if you think it's going to be okay and okay is what you want okay to be, that's the the gap we all fall into. I think you touched on then high performance habits and what do you do? Because uh, for me, The smaller decisions and the smaller ideas that it will be okay are for smaller businesses because what they'll do is a situation will come up and they'll say it'll be okay, right? And that's almost their default, which will be, it's okay, I know we'll get through it, we lost that customer, but we'll be okay, we'll get another one. As opposed to that person in that role is constantly not performing, it will be okay, but it'll be much more okay if that person wasn't here or that product we didn't sell anymore, or that relationship with the supplier is not what we want anymore. Being okay is not just putting your hands up and waiting it out. It will be okay means identifying what's not working and changing it the best you can. And then the outcome of that will be whether it's okay or not for what you can live with right now. And I come back to, I know I've spoken about it before, but Mercedes and Formula One, they came second, not first. And Toto Wolf, who runs the Mercedes team, said he was going to spend the weekend and the weeks examining what happened. 
they could have just said, it's okay, we only came second, we'll be first next race. But there is no okay. It was not okay that they came second and they had to figure out all the reasons that they came second because they were going to make sure that they didn't come second again. This is how I like to approach this idea of it's going to be okay. Yeah, but my okay is going to be very different to someone else's okay. Yeah, and I need to be, I'll only be okay if I know that the fundamental infrastructure that caused the last issue has been changed. So you look at some of the people over the, you know, the years that have been in workplaces of harassment or bullying. It's not okay unless the fundamental things have changed, even though the person might be okay. So you're not okay because someone left. You're okay because you've stopped a systemic problem in that organization. The same in our businesses. It's not okay to miss targets. It's okay to miss the targets if what it led to is you changing what fundamentally needed to shift to get a result. If you lost to get better. Yeah. And this is the okay. It is always okay because you're still in the game. You've got air in your lungs and you're still able to make decisions, but you have to be pretty brutal on that. I think where people get this one wrong is they just allow time to heal all, but don't take any actual action. And in personal lives, we need time sometimes when situations come up. We can't pretend we're not hurt. We can't pretend we're not upset. We can't pretend we don't feel things. That's life. But in business, we can take things that aren't ideal and take action. It won't be okay if you sit on the sidelines and watch. You can't be a passenger if you own a company. You actually have to make decisions. And it will be okay because we've fundamentally changed the way in which we've operated to make sure this never happens again. If not, you're just waiting for the next disaster. Or you're complicit in other people not being okay because you're allowing things to happen and things to go on because you've decided it's okay. Yeah. But what about who you're responsible for? I agree. And I think some of the tough ones that come up with that is even conversations that are easy to leave. Something happens and you know you need to have them. We had one recently, Lana, where you you brought to my awareness a conversation that might need to happen. I'm like, oh, man, it's the last thing I need to do right now. Obviously, Lana was right. (laughs) But it was the importance of understanding that those are the little things that you can that can slip through in your business because they're not immediately important, but they're actually the most important thing because unless you're dealing with things when they're small and can be nipped in the bud or change direction or whatever it is, you're going to have a lot of problems. And these are the things that fall off the to-do list for an owner because they're hard work because some of them are emotional. You have to invest time, energy, but it won't be okay if you don't do that. How do you balance being an eternal optimist and not doing nothing? (laughs) (laughs) He has just lobbed that question up and is letting it (laughs) sit there. Um, It comes back to the fact that you can't take things too seriously, even when they are serious. Serious or personally? Both. You've spoken about this before, which is there's there's a bigger map, there's a bigger picture, there's a bigger strategy. If something happens that we'll say is small and you decide to address it and deal with it, even if it doesn't go your way, you can't take it too seriously because you know the bigger picture and you can't take it too personally because it's not about you. It's about you getting to that end goal. And for me, that's always been, I can be very optimistic that we're going to get to our goal, but I'm also 
a realist that how we get there is going to change probably weekly because of the fact that you do like to break things down and build them back up again quite quickly. So that sort of training, I'll say day in and day out for 10 or so years, if I was to take everything personally, seriously and become a pessimist, I just I wouldn't function. But I have faith in that end goal of where we're getting and I've also seen it happen enough that we always are okay. We always get what we want because we do work hard, we do do products, we do all the right things. And on top of that, as a team, we don't take no for an answer. Pessimism is a really important one because I think also when you identify anyone or yourself that's being pessimistic in an organisation, that's one of those really important ones because you don't want that energy around you. Some people are proud of their pessimism because I'm just conservative. I need to see things happen before I get excited about them. They're the people I need to get rid of. I hate those as people. in, I've got to get them out of my life. Not I'm talking about my business. I mean, get them out of my life because they always bring negativity. It doesn't mean you can't be optimistic and conservative, but I'm talking about pessimistic. If you're optimistic, it doesn't say that you don't know all of the bad things. You know that there are crises coming. You know that there are bumps along the road. You know all of this, but you're making an active decision to look beyond that because you know what the goal is and that you can look past all of the craziness and pick one thing and go for that. Pessimism, I would say, is a personal trait that people have because it's easier. It's easier to look for the bad than it is to look for the good and make that decision to look past the bad. Yeah, people love to be pessimistic because that way if it doesn't work, they can say, I told you so, or I knew that wasn't going to work. And like, that's fine. But you've got to look around whether you want that type of energy in your business, particularly if you're in an entrepreneurial business, which is any small business, any, any growing company, you need people who want to try and build things that haven't been built before. People who want to go after markets that your company hasn't done before. You actually need to be optimistic that this will work. And there is a time for debate, by the way. That's in the planning. When we're talking about pessimism, it means we've already made the decision to do it. You're on board or you're not, but we've made the decision as a team to do this strategy. You don't get to not invest 100%, including your faith in it'll work. If not, take that person off the team. You don't have a right to be, oh, yeah, I knew that wouldn't work. They're the type of people you want working for your competitors. You have to surround yourself with people that, Once a decision is made, they look for how it's going to happen, not why it's not going to work. There's nothing worse than people who I call it, you know, bum coverers, which is basically I'm going to do the things that make sure that if it doesn't go right, I look like the smartest person. If you're the smartest person in something that didn't work, you're on my radar because it just shows that you don't actually get the game we're playing, which is we're trying to do things that haven't been done. And quite often those people will think they are the smartest person, that they'll assume that the owners or the project lead or whoever it is, they've made this decision but they haven't thought about what could happen. I say to you, actually ask the person. I know with you, Tim, you have thought about the good and the bad and you've made a decision to go ahead. You don't need to be told the bad. You're aware of it. Yeah, and there's that management principle. You don't want a company full of yes yes men. That's not the point. It doesn't mean there's not lively debate. It's about getting to these things and going, we've got faith in what we're trying to do, so we need to go all in on that. That's where you win. That's where you win is making something happen that others didn't think could happen. That's where the gap is. It's also where people think that you are sometimes a little bit crazy in your thinking because you can look past the negative for the gap. As all of you know, I love Formula One racing and the great drivers, they see the gap. 
they see the gap and they go for it. You've got literally the best 20 drivers in the world all looking for that one opportunity. It's the same in your business. Who's looking for the gap or the opportunity and forcing their way in to find that opportunity for you and your company? But this is um, getting back on track with our, <laughs> our worst advice that we've ever received. I think it's clear that there's really no bad advice. It's only the advice you take on. Like, there's no bad food. It's only the stuff you eat. <laughs> so if, if, yeah, have you got a problem with donuts right now? You don't have a box of donuts, but do you have a problem with donuts right now? Right now, no. Yeah. Over my lifetime, probably. <laughs> Great, because you put them in your mouth. It's the same with advice. We are in a world now where you can access the greatest minds with the tap of a website, with the flick on a social media channel. First thing you've got to ask is, why are they the world's best mind in your mind? And also, what am I allowing in and what do I want from that? Because if you're jumping around from Instagram post to Instagram post and changing your philosophy on life, you probably haven't spent enough time working out what do you want to do? What is your business trying to do? If you listen to a YouTube video and you're suddenly for two days sitting there reflecting on the couch because you're so inspired and you actually have done nothing, you've got to work out where am I at? Lack of advice is not a problem anymore. Everyone has access to the most unbelievable people. Once upon a time, it wasn't. Networks and advice and, and the schools you went to, the families you were with because they had networks you could access different advice and it was quality advice. Gone are the days. The world has opened up. The problem is now building your personal filter and grabbing the things that are going to work for you where you are right now questioning everything but not to a point of hey that sounds great how would i apply that and see if that works for me without completely changing my whole philosophy overnight most people hear something there's a nice whiz bang video and so they take a sledgehammer to their whole life which is just stupid that's gambling who are you allowing in so easily to manipulate your mind and this goes with all types of content how easy are you to manipulate and then the question then becomes, how do I know I'm being manipulated? And the reality is you start applying the things that resonate with you and seeing if that gives you a better result or worse result. And I think that's the key with all of this. None of the advice any of us have received haven't been absolutely important for the development over our lives, whether it was good or bad or change from good and bad depending on where we were in terms of our life stage. So there's no such thing as bad advice. It's just the advice you digest at what time? Like a donut, Nigel. <laughs> <laughs> Team, always fun to discuss. I like this one because I think it relaxes you a bit when you realize there's no such thing as bad advice. I get to choose what to apply or not to apply or I get to delve and find out more for myself. Lana, Nigel, thanks for the chat. We'll um, do it all again next week. See ya. Well, that's the show for this week. Thanks for listening. And of course, if you head on over to backable.ai, you can access all the downloadables we've put together. Now, if you want to stay up to date with all things Backable and Philodomo, then make sure to join our Facebook group and follow us on one or all of the platforms you can find in the show description below. As always, if you have enjoyed this week's podcast, please don't forget to like, subscribe and leave a review. That's all from us for now. Have a great week and we look forward to speaking with you next week. Bye.